Paratruth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. Christian and non-Christian paranormal investigators. They have two different views, and it seems as if neither of them can ever agree on anything. So what happens when a mainstream view of the paranormal crosses paths with the Christian view? <laughs> Something What's up, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Paratruth Radio. My name is Eric. And I'm Justin. And today we have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Heather Lynn. She is a historian, a renegade archaeologist, and defender of classical education, a professor of humanities by day and ardent truth seeker by night. Heather is on a mission to uncover and share the lost wisdom of antiquity, challenging the accepted narrative found in our history books author of multiple books and articles on fringe topics ranging from history to philosophy, Heather's research includes hidden history, ancient mysteries, mythology, the occult, symbolism, paleocontact, and consciousness. And without further ado, we're going to go to the line with Dr. Heather Lynn. Dr. Heather Lynn, welcome to Paratruth Radio. How are you this evening? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We've been excited to talk to you. So I think oh, likewise. Just, <laughs> uh, right off the bat, I, I really just want to get an idea here of uh, what it was that really had you decide on evil archaeology for a book. And, you know, what was it that took you on this journey and made you think, oh, this is going to be a great book for people? Uh, and really, what kind of reader is this book geared toward? Well, um, I guess my inspiration um, I, I would like to say that it was something, you know, a little deeper than what it actually was. But my inspiration was the movie The Exorcist. Uh, in the beginning scene from the book and movie, uh, there's a scene from an, archaeolo- an archaeological excavation in Iraq. And at the site, a priest archaeologist feels this strong wind blowing and it's foreshadowing the arrival of uh, the demon Pazuzu of Mesopotamia. And uh, the demon statue featured on the cover of the book is actually uh, the Pazuzu, which is the demon that possessed the character in the movie. And, you know, it's uh, I, I was brought up Catholic and I was not really supposed to be watching that movie at any point in time. And, um, you know, I did see it and it just it was there and in my reference and, you know, life goes on and I hadn't seen it for a while. And as an adult, I saw it and I picked up on that beginning sequence that I hadn't connected before you know, because of my line of work, I found it a little interesting. And I started to then ponder the relationship between demons of ancient Mesopotamia and the, the modern era. And I wondered if demons of the ancient world could still be with us today. It was sort of a, you know, a passing thought. But it wasn't long after seeing the movie then that I read a news story about a man in North Carolina who changed his name to Pazuzu so that he could honor that particular demon. And he went on... Um, you know, he was actually discussed because he uh, was a murderer and he cannibalized his neighbors and he was involved in these horrific crimes. But 
you know, he believed he was taking part in as a way to uh, worship and, you know, all this, um, these Mesopotamian demons and, and this sort of thing. And I thought, well, that's just, you know, weird and interesting. And it was interesting timing, of course. And so it was fresh on my mind. And I started thinking about that. And I thought, you know, clearly this, this individual is responsible for his own actions. But uh, he claimed to be inspired by these demons to do these things. And I considered the Latin for inspiration, you know, the inspirare meaning to breathe or blow into and how it was originally used to describe when a supernatural being imparted an idea onto someone. And so I thought about this question of possession and I wondered, well, what is possession but an evil spiritual entity inhabiting a willing person and encouraging them to do evil things? And so I started toying with the idea of, well, what is this fine line between something like inspiration and something that would be possession? And I wondered about how do we view these sorts of activities now and how did the ancients view this? Because there have always been, you know, people who've done these horrific things and crimes and the idea of evil. And I just started wondering about that. So I don't know that I had a particular demographic in mind when I wrote the book. I just, uh, most of the time what I do when I write is just follow my own questions and ponderings and interests. And um, hopefully uh, what I do is I, you know, I, <laughs> I present something that other people may find as interesting as I do. I, um, I work on it as a, as a journey of exploration and I try in my work to present it as, as such. So I don't usually have a um, either an agenda or a point that I want to get across. Uh, you know, I just, I, I, I look at things with the questions and then I also know where my expertise lie and where, where they don't. So um, with that said, I enlisted the help of, or the input um, in some ways of people that might be, you know, better well-versed in things like exorcisms. Um, so for instance, I interviewed Bill Bean, an exorcist uh, on his views on this sort of thing. And you know, so I, I, I looked at it as more of an exploration into the origin of evil and the connection between how that was shaped in the past and evolved and how it may be at play today. Okay. All right. Well, here's a question for you. A lot of uh, serial killers have used symbols, for example, um, not necessarily for power per se, but for the symbolism itself, like the uh, pentagram, um, you know, Charlie Manson, um, the Night Stalker, several others have used the symbolism. Zodiac used symbols as well. Um, a lot of times that we, you know, we, we talk about demonic possession here on Paratruth, but we also talk about how maybe us as humans giving these particular things power uh, over spiritual entities actually doing th these things um, can, can have the same effect. What are your thoughts on that? I think so. I think that that is, you know, probably one of the things that I, I explored in the book in the research was this idea between the tangible actual reality of something like a demon versus what we put onto things. So such as like amulets or symbols, um, you know, I tried to use a, uh, an approach 
um, sometimes referred to as cognitive archaeology, so that I could look at the meanings, concept, characteristics, and symbols um, and description of things to, you know, not just look at uh, assigning blame or, you know, but trying to have a, a more complex or nuanced look at these matters, but also at the same time, not ruling out the question of, uh, you know, the spiritual components. Could there actually mm. be something more to this? And is it something that when we're looking at symbols and as a result, language, the concept of linguistics, um, are we just limiting ourselves by the language we're using um, or is it actually enhancing or is it completely complicating matters? And so in some ways, it's like you could look at these issues and think, well, we're using these different terms to describe this maybe demon or, a, you know, an entity or, you know, while at the same time, um, the ancients might have been using that particular term to describe an illness. And so it may sound like splitting hairs, but in, in some ways it would seem like um, when you take Occam's razor and you just maybe look a little more closely and take some of that symbolism out or, you know, some of the maybe ornamental value of it. Um, it, it's, it becomes a little more like we're all talking about the same thing. And we've all, and when I say all, I mean through different cultures, even religions, uh, different time periods that we are sharing this experience and whatever it may be, whether it's the way someone's behaving differently or horrific acts that we can't understand that defy our comfort level of what we may feel is, is the natural order, however you want to frame it. There's something there that across languages and experiences and belief sets, we just know. And we've, as people, developed ways to describe these things. And we can call them demons, evil entities. Some called them just angels in general or spirits or, um, you know, there's so many different ways to look at it. Jinn, or even if they're not anthropomorphized, they could just be a symbol of an animal, or as you said, a pentagram or something actually tangible. Um, either way, uh, I, I think that there is a very simple, not not easy, but simple thread that, that can be kind of seen holding everything together. I think that we're all on the same page about something, and the language is what it is that maybe we need to you know, look more deeply into. Um, so that's kind of what I found with symbols, because symbols are, you know, a form of language as well. Um, how much power do we give those symbols? And that's another question to consider is, you know, uh, words have a lot of meaning, as do, um, you know, amulets or these sorts of things. Even if it's just how we feel about them, um, those feelings can turn into action that have very real physical consequences. Um, you know, so that leaves us with a lot of different um, questions and things. So, you know, people can talk all day about how many angels can fit on the, you know, tip of a needle or or what have you. But um, these are very real questions that have practical, you know, consequences. That oh, is something evil? What is evil? Does this match my religion or morality, et cetera, et cetera? At the end of the day, while those are very important theological discussions, um, we know evil when we see it, um, and mm -hmm. you know we have to sort of have these symbols, have these these terms so that we can function in a society as well. And that's what, what I believe has happened since the beginning is if you look at the ancient Mesopotamian, you know, demonology, uh, a lot of it is primitive medicine. And so while they had all of these different names for demons, um, they had a lot of symptoms for the possessions and they were really diseases. But 
at the same time, they sort of anthropomorphize the disease. And, and for example, if, if you had cancer, they you need to have these symptoms. And instead of calling it cancer, they might have named it after Lamastu, you know, one of the, the, the demons. Um, so yes, they anthropomorphized it, but you know, what is that? There's something there. And I think, you know, it's, it's served a practical purpose because it's gotten us in, you know, so far in development to where we are today that they actually laid the groundwork for modern medicine. And so, you know, symbols are very important and whether or not they can by themselves have some sort of independent imbued power, um, you know, it's hard to really say. I, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that. Um, but I, I will say that the, the what people put onto them, the meanings that they put onto that have very real and tangible consequences. And so it's very important to even consider such things. So with that said, like considering we talk a lot about how uh, there are various ways that people can accidentally open doors uh, to the spiritual mm -hmm. realm. Uh, and, and so with your conversations with like the exorcists during the interviews, did you find anything, uh, maybe they said anything uh, regarding whether or not superstition really plays into many of the demonic possessions that they actually take call to? Or is it, I mean... Mm -hmm. Well, not necessarily. Yeah, and that's something interesting because the idea of superstition, um, you know, that that's a really interesting concept in and of itself because it's easy to dismiss something as just superstition. Um, but at the same time, where where did we where did we come up with these ideas? It's almost like a um, maybe genetic memory or some sort of folk knowledge that tells us, hmm, let's put on the brakes before we start doing these things. And so, um, you know, but in terms of you know, my discussions with various exorcists, um, the idea of dabbling, that's a very popular idea. Um, nobody that I spoke to when researching this book at, at all said that dabbling would be a good idea. And that includes psychologists. Um, so if you're looking at it from the perspective of a, a religious point of view, even versus um, just maybe a, a more secular and psychological point of view, um, something with regard to um, superstition or something like that. Um, either way, if you are concerned about letting some sort of negativity in, that idea of dabbling uh, is just really uh, not recommended, at least not what I found, um, that it's something that does open doorways. And if it doesn't actually, from the perspective of exorcists that I spoke to, they agree that it can open spiritual or metaphysical doorways. By contrast, the psychologists that I spoke to both said that it can open doorways on a subconscious level, which to me, you know, uh, is very closely aligned with that metaphysical or spiritual component. So it's just maybe, again, another idea of uh, the linguistic difference, but kind of at least coming to the same conclusion that for whichever reason, however you may have developed you know, the methodology to reach that conclusion is probably not a good idea to dabble because it can open doors. Um, and those doors are perhaps, you know, a, a subjective, however somebody wants to describe that, whether, again, they're spiritual doors or if it's just subconscious doors, um, some would argue those are one and the same. And that would just be, a, you know, that question of splitting the mind, the idea of mind, the mind-body, and that maybe that's something we shouldn't do because they're connected in a holistic way that that subconscious and that consciousness, the spirituality component of it, um, they're actually more closely related. Um, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I would tend to fall, the idea that 
uh, yeah, there's the spiritual, and then there's also um, something that's more uh, psychological, and that those things are actually not in conflict. And uh, as much as it may seem like they are to somebody with a particular bias or the other, um, I see a lot of ways that they overlap, at least for you know the practical outcome. Uh, and so at the end of the day, if you're you know somebody's concerned about bringing that negativity to them, whether they think it's in the form of a anthropomorphized entity, or if it's just something that maybe it is superstitious and they don't want that to enter their psyche. Um, however they reach that, I think it's probably helpful to at least not open those doors. All right. Well, actually, as you were talking, um, I, I kind of had a question too. It was, you know, we you had mentioned earlier, and I read in the book about how uh, there there were a lot of different cultures that would use um, different things to let out the the evil spirits, even though uh, really they were they were kind of truly treating diseases as well. Um, how often than not were there? Uh, deaths or or even brain damage from these particular evil spirit letting out type uh practices well uh you know i think there i don't know if i actually reference a particular number because as you said that is something cross-culturally you'll find uh, because right. of the different ways that people perform exorcism so um, there would be actually quite a few if you look at um, you know especially in foreign countries You'll see a lot of people doing something with maybe folk medicine or things that maybe wouldn't be, um, you know, something we would consider safe maybe in a, in a more developed country. However, um, it's 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 not even safe to consider it uh, just because it's in a developed nation, something that would be modern or contemporary that, oh, well, it, it'll happen without a flaw or, you know, because it's it's we've actually seen in recent relatively recent years, um, people in the United States um, dying from these activities. And so, uh, for instance, in 97, um, there was a woman killed in California. And in New York, about the same year, a five-year-old died after she was made to swallow a uh, cocktail of ammonia and vinegar and had her mouth sealed shut. Um, I mean, she died from that. And, and this happened a lot in the 90s. Uh, the 17-year-old was suffocated by her mother with a plastic bag because she was trying to kill the devil who she believed to be inside her. Now, arguably, that wouldn't be a, a prescribed exorcism. That could be just the right. mother having these delusions and then unfortunately killing her child. But then uh, in 2001, there was a, a woman in New Zealand that was actually strangled by a priest during an exorcism. Mm -hmm. And the list goes on and on about all of these different activities that have taken place. Uh, Well-meaning people in, in some cases, some cases not, uh, but it, it is something to consider that the idea of exorcisms, they're very traumatic, they're very dangerous, they're not something to be taken lightly, and they're definitely, um, it's, it's not like they, they show in the movies, we'll just say that, it's not, even in the movies it looks very traumatic, but I mean, again, there are very real consequences for things like this, and uh, you know, people have uh, died. They've died of dehydration, lack of oxygen, just the mental torment of it all. 
Um, and definitely mental illness has played a part in some of that. Um, so right. uh, there's been a case in the South Germany. Um, it was it was actually a, a pretty famous case. Uh, two films were made about uh, this girl's ordeal, The Exorcism of Emily Rose in 2005 and a movie called Requiem in 2006. And uh, this is a story from actually 1968. Uh, the girl was diagnosed with epilepsy and was on medication, but it, it wasn't really helping her. And so by the 70s, she ended up being admitted to the hospital for six months having tuberculosis. And she just became more depressed and had more issues and her medication still wasn't working. And so a neurologist found that her EEG was starting to show abnormalities. And a week later, she claimed to see a demon in a vision. And she would start to pray and then the prayer just became longer and more intense. And then she would become really afraid and, and paranoid and in some cases delusional. But she, this went on for a few years until she would just suffer countless seizures and continue to see what she described as demonic faces with horns. And she said she smelled horrible sulfuric smells and it, it, it was just an ordeal. And so by this point, her father took her to um, a Northern Italian town and told her, you know, she was going to be healed. And this was where she would see Mary. It had been a place of pilgrimage uh, for people for um, you know, many years. And while she was there, she fell to the ground and said that her feet were on fire. And the, they called the local priest for help. And they started to give her an impromptu exorcism. And at this point, she started tearing off her clothes, urinating on the floor, she was eating whatever she could find and she she like just grabbing handfuls of, of dirt and she attacked the priest. And apparently the priests say that the, the demon who had taken possession of her uh, called himself Judas. And so they kept trying to help her and it took years. And, you know, after the mid 70s, um, they, they had these failed attempts to help her with these exorcisms and still with medication. And so the priest decided to try harder and go in for more intensive exorcisms. And so the demons, including uh, the Judas demon, and then others that called themselves Lucifer, Hitler, Nero, they started to become increasingly violent. And this girl had just gone through the ringer um, close to a decade, starting with the, you know, the, the delusions or the, um, you know, epileptic seizures, and now all the way to this, just violent, slamming her head against the wall, not sleeping, not eating, and her knees actually broke after she had been kneeling so many times to pray. And so by the time she ended up dying, and it was a day after her, and this is mind-blowing, but her 67th exorcism. And she had died from just losing so much weight and going through all of this. Um, and so the cause of death was um, actually malnutrition and dehydration. And at the time she died, she weighed only 70 pounds. And you can imagine a grown woman, you know, at this point weighing 70 pounds and her oh. parents and the two priests who were involved in this uh, were actually convicted of negligent homicide. And so as a result, you know, there's a lot of legends about her and, of course, these movies that had been made 
Um, and and so it can be a very dangerous thing. And, and so that I mean, it's, a, it's hard to unpack that because you could say, well, clearly she had epilepsy and that was the cause of her illness. She had, you know, the doctors failed her. Her parents failed her. The priest failed her. Uh, these these entities, you know, was that was, was she suffering just from these delusions or at which point do you draw the line between these are, you know, delusions or these are actual possessions of, of entities and either way again it's something to be taken very seriously because she tragically dies and right. you would think that that would you know have people maybe considering this a little more looking into it a little more or regulating it at the very least um, but even though there are these clear dangers uh, the exorcisms have become more popular than ever they're on the rise in many countries uh, in Italy and uh, in the Vatican and, you know, in the Catholic, um, you know, practice that's become something that has been increasingly popular. But then also uh, in the evangelical movements, it's been something that's very popular in the United States. And I discussed that a little bit in the book as well, my experience, actually witnessing um, a, what would maybe be looked at as a non-traditional style exorcism, if you consider the traditional one to be something recognizable in pop culture, like the, uh, you know, priest saying, demon, what is your name? And this sort of thing. So, um, but the, the practice is uh, becoming more and more popular. And, you know, with that, I guess that means there's going to be a, a you know, a lot more potential for, for dangers. And so, and and, right. and then what's interesting too, are there, there are some psychologists that are starting to incorporate exorcisms into their practices uh, because they believe that there may be some, you know, benefit to it if your client or patient is somebody who uh, has these pre-existing beliefs already. Right. So, you know, that's, it comes down to that symbolism again, you know, in my view that hey, if it works, if it's something that you can use to have them break through and have this understanding, and maybe that can reach into their subconscious and heal them in some way. And that the, and then in that case, is that their subconscious or is this their spirit? Is that what that is? Or, you know, it might seem just like semantics, again, or splitting hairs, but um, this, to me, was one of the important themes in the book, is just trying to figure out what are we talking about when it comes to evil and demons? Um, because it's so easy to just imagine a demon as just a uh, hooved red character with horns and then not um, completely appreciate what we understand as humans to be a demonic entity. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's like, even as a psychologist, maybe someone who doesn't believe in the same uh, religious beliefs that the person is they're talking with, it, you know, doing the exorcism, maybe to the, the patient, it's, it's like a drug that actually helps them. Whereas to the psychologist, it's a placebo, uh, something they don't mm -hmm. necessarily believe, but still affects the mind. Uh, and, and that's still... You know, I think it's really interesting just in general. Uh, I didn't know that, that some were doing that these days. Um, yeah. Now, you'd mentioned a couple demons uh, just a little bit ago, and you mentioned a number of demons throughout the book. But one that I would like to discuss, and I let me know if I mispronounce either of these names, but uh, I'd like to discuss uh, uh, Asmodeus for a moment. Uh, now, mm -hmm. according to your research, uh, and this is actually just so everyone knows, uh, this comes from the chapter called Summoning Demons uh, that you talk about this. Uh, but according mm -hmm. to your research, he was an especially wretched demon that was perhaps enslaved by, is it Ornias? 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, saved by Arnaeus through the magic ring of Solomon, which was given unto Solomon as a gift from God by the Archangel Michael. Now, Solomon lent Arnaeus after capturing him. Uh, he, he lent it to Arnaeus to capture other demons uh, for the construction of Solomon's temple. Now, in the book, you had mentioned that the similarities between Asmodeus and Lucifer are actually remarkably similar. Uh, my question is, would you mind sharing some of the attributes shared between these two entities and also what ultimately separates them as two separate demons as opposed to possibly the same demon with two different names? Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Oh, you know, that is a really great question. Um, and uh, well, so I would start by saying that they were two different demons um, in, in the interpretation and just the story. However, I I believe that given their particular attributes, I, I really think that they were one and the same in a lot of ways, and that that's a, a one of these cases where maybe it came through and it had that that religious syncretism where some of these things melded into one and then became the other, etc. I I think that this is more about it being a Promethean figure. So I, I don't know that they are two separate ones. Clearly, they're, they're, they have two separate stories, but a lot of these stories have crossover. A lot of these stories are very ancient, but then they are revived in the Renaissance, and then they're you know expanded or changed. Many different authors you know, have written different versions. Um, and there's all these threads of similarity between these types of Promethean figures. And so while Asmodeus is, well, he was considered the demon of occult wisdom and human technological advances. And he was considered also the successor to the Egyptian god of wisdom and learning, Toth, who both of them were linked to Sirius. And so, it's, I mean, it sounds like kind of strange, maybe, to, to your listeners that these demons could be connected to these Egyptian gods. Um, but it, again, it might be, it's it's one of these things that uh, you know I discuss in the book of demonizing, the process of demonizing. And so throughout a lot of these ancient cultures, they had these, these gods or these um, entities. They, sometimes they didn't even separate the, the demons from the angels. They would just consider them these spiritual entities. But either way, uh, they, they would take on these attributes and change the way they looked or, or what have you, their names depending on what culture they would be in. But their key components would, of their personality would stay the same. And so uh, that's what leads me to believe that they were the same figure um, because of how they're portrayed in all of these different 
cultures. One, for example, is uh, in Islamic tradition, um, Asmodeus was considered a jinn, and it's the very same jinn that cheated Aladdin out of the ring to secure the magic lamp. I mean, that's the very, very common and popular, um, you know, being. So it's it's like Asmodeus was the king of these demons, and Lucifer was considered to be, you know, the the king of these demons in a lot of the, the different stories. And so, and again, he was a Promethean figure to connect him to Prometheus, who had the similar feature of being, say, a, a entity of wisdom or technological advances. And in a lot of ways, I just I think that these are I don't want to dismiss them by saying, well, these are just names for the same thing, because they they do contain very different and specific attributes and characteristics that link them to their particular times and cultures. However, it is my belief that they are referencing the same spirit or entity and that spirit or entity or even archetype, if you will, is that of the um, trickster, the you know Promethean figure. And that sort of thing. And so that and would be, I think, in our society, be considered Lucifer. And so I do think Asmodeus is Lucifer and Lucifer is Asmodeus. Okay. Um, well, this, uh, this particular chapter is actually just really fascinating to me. Uh, and so moving on to uh, page 122, under the subtopic of possession pandemic, you actually talk a little bit about how, according to some Muslim researchers, jinn can be responsible for a number of psychological disorders. Now, it is, in fact, believed that a jinn doesn't need to fully possess a person, but can cause physical and emotional trauma by infiltrating the human brain, either directly or through the bloodstream in order to affect the hormones and neurotransmitters of a person. Now, <clears throat> this section was, again, really interesting to me, but what actually piqued my curiosity was a sentence that you wrote that said, some Muslim researchers have suggested that the presence of jinn can be detected by MRI or magnetic resonance imaging. And so my question is, was there at all in any of your research, any indication on how an MRI may expose a jinn or what a jinn's presence within the human body may actually look like? Yes, actually, th this is something that I found to be so important. I had to put it into the book, but also a little frustrating because um, it's it's not as developed as um, well. Pr it's probably you know I have limitations in my in my language and ability to translate. So there's a lot more um, scientific research out there available that I unfortunately wasn't able to translate. So from what I could, my limited um, ability to get English versions of of different research, um, I found that this is a legitimate study in the Islamic world to track down jinn as a physical phenomenon. And they've used different things like M MRIs to try to find what it is that, um, you know, could be responsible if they could detect it somehow. Um, and so, yes, they, it's, it's a little, at least in my opinion, it's a little unconvincing. So they just look at these different um, activity areas that are, are you know, I guess, illuminated um, in the mind that they've sort of linked to particular types of what they believe would be a possession. 
um, again, it's something that I'm like, well, maybe within a different context, that could be helpful. So I didn't see anything that was overwhelmingly convincing, which is why I think what I found to be even more interesting was the research that had to do with um, looking at the molecular explanation for demons um, as opposed to the MRI, because it continued the idea of a germ theory of demonology that they were able to back up with uh, mathematic models. And I thought that is really interesting because, again, instead of looking at, you know, an MRI and, and these sorts of scans are, um, you know, clearly scientific, but there's a little bit of subjectivity that can go into them by having to look at them or have your senses. But so I don't want to call it qualitative, but um, it's it, there's definitely a little bit of, of user bias that could enter that. So when I saw that what they were doing in addition to the MRI um, is using mathematic models to not only uh, identify the gin, but to to predict their behavior within a, a certain level of accuracy, I thought, wait a minute, now it's, now it's getting quantitative. Now it's getting a little on the harder edge of science. And I thought, what? for one thing, I thought it was quite fascinating that there's actual finance, you know, research going into this at a, at a university level. Um, and of course, some people have cited that part of the book as being, um, you know, objectionable because they say, well, it's a pseudoscience and et cetera. But um, I, you know, if they're using the scientific method I, I, and that's the way they'd like to look into that, I have no problem with that. I don't think that there's uh, anything wrong with natural curiosity and also trying to use science to perhaps investigate issues of, of religion or theology. And so from my perspective, it was very exciting research. And um, so again, they have that idea of maybe germ theory of demonology that's very much similar to uh, the ancient Mesopotamian approach to demonology. And so in this kind of explanation for demons, uh, they think of it beyond just mental illness, but also related to the mental illness, um, but that these jinn or evil spirits are um, sort of responsible for things like epilepsy, autoimmune, um, even cancer. And so according to some of the scientists in uh, Morocco that are working on this research, um, these spirits are invisible to the naked eye, but not like ghosts or something, but more like microbes. And they contend that the existence of these evil spiritual molecules um, exist beyond human perception, um, but that they, they believe they're getting close to being able to pick them up um, through ways like MRIs or, you know, advanced micro, you know, microscopes using, using many different methods to try to find them. But in the meantime, if they thought, well, we're going to look at this molecular composition of these evil spirits and um, try to figure out you know, some of the key questions. And so interestingly, they, they thought about the idea of uh, demons sort of being linked to the darkness. And in all of the fables and tales, you know, demons don't like light. They, they spook around corners or in, you know, dark places. And um, so the idea of that is that they're averse to light, um, which explains why they appear at night in the, in the dark. And they believe that they have their own then physical laws or life cycles and that they can enter the bloodstream and rapidly multiply. And, and uh, so they've sort of built this whole system around this by using faith, I would say first as a guide and then using the scientific method to try to test that or detect that. And, um, you know, but I, I thought it was so fascinating that they were able to 
you look at the mathematic models and try to figure out, and they claim um, are able to predict the movements of these demons and how they how they'll manifest in these in, in the physical body of somebody. Now, again, it's it's hard. It's it's definitely something to look at with a, a healthy level of, of skepticism, um, and you know, it's another maybe a ethical question or to some people. Should science dictate our beliefs or should our beliefs dictate science? So which, which comes first? But I felt it was important to add into the book just simply because I think it's important to kind of get out of our own, um, you know, Western centric way of, of approaching science and explore what other people are doing and, and how they're looking at it. It might, you know, help to expand our understanding of, of these things called jinn or even demons. So. Uh, but yeah, I, I I think there's some exciting research on the horizon, and I would really really love to see um, sort of a more interdisciplinary approach to looking at this. Um, if anything, I think it would help expand ideas, um, you know, of medicine. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And like you know, I, over the years, I've constantly said how I think uh, just science and religion really have to have a balanced marriage uh, between the two because we're always getting this you know, religion says this, science says that, and we're always butting heads lately, it seems like. Uh, but seeing something like this with the MRI and how we can detect possibly demonic entities through science while still claiming, yeah, hey, there's a possibility, but maybe not. This is the evidence for both sides. Uh, it, it's just really an interesting thing, and I think very, very important for researchers, especially those within the paranormal field, uh, and the account to, to really get on board with. I agree. I think it's very important to start looking toward uh, the scientific method or using scientific tools and, and quantitative methods to try to, uh, you know, separate the, the, the cream. Um, so hopefully we'll have more of that. <laughs> I don't think it's, un- I think it's, I think it's good. I, I don't think that it is, this is my just personal opinion, but I don't think that it's, is um, challenging faith to use science to try to investigate um, the, the the natural world and to try to do those things. I think that um, it's it, it can actually strengthen faith and do a great service. And I'm just one of those people. I don't believe that there should be that um, just disregarding it as superstition. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, um, religion and that maybe spiritual sense, not necessarily organized, but just the idea of religion. Um, in a human sense, it's actually uh, the precursor to science. It was the first way we tried to, you know, understand the world around us and the happenings. And, mm-hmm. and we had philosophy and then science. And I, I just don't think that um, they belong to so separately. I think that it's important to use science to understand um, the things that we don't understand. <laughs> Agreed. I think we've found our uh, muse, Eric, for the Fair Truth Radio in Dr. Heather Lynn. So (laughs) um, something you bring up in the book, and um, I I think it's like really important that we do this, but um, I am kind of curious about your um, intentions about putting the the protections against evil in the book, because you had mentioned earlier about how uh, psychologists are using exorcism as a way to treat patients. Uh, what what was your your original thought about putting that particular chapter in the book? The chapter about the um, can you, can you explain that one more time? 
the the um deliver us from evil may we no longer fear any evil all, all those oh. different ways that you can protect yourself from evil yeah oh well i felt that was so important to add into the book because a lot of the book um if i if i'm discussing things like serial killing or you know a lot of these horrific archaeological finds and you know it it seems you know a little it could seem at least a little dishearten disheartening discouraging and I really wanted to point out that throughout a lot of my research and my interviews, that this wasn't something to fear, that we didn't have reason to actually fear. And that from what I've found to be the case with the interviews is that fear is actually more dangerous than, you know, if you're trying to not have an evil entity around you or any kind of like negative influence, then the, the, you definitely don't want to have fear. And so fear is something that can create vulnerability. And again, it, it could be the, the argument that, well, that fear um, puts you in this, some sort of like metaphysical state of negativity. And then that leaves the door open for something, um, you know, otherworldly to enter your life. Or it could also be that perspective of if you dwell in a negative place psychologically, you'll be more prone to go down those negative dark roads. Either way, I thought it was very important to, um, you know, balance and at least maybe end the book to, to a certain extent um, with that advice of, you know, not being afraid and looking at some of the ways that ancient people try to protect themselves in the past and how people are trying to protect themselves now. And is there anything that we can glean from that or, is, or are they all just superstitions? Is it just, oh, you know, hold on to this? amulet and that'll make you feel better or you know is there anything like that and i really have to say I, i'm i'm really grateful to bill bean for his input into this he um, really got me to see he his experience with exorcisms um you know i i talked to him for a very long time in many interviews and um it, it was fascinating to see how um similar the experiences he had and has on a regular basis actually have been to some of the accounts of ancient exorcists, except he didn't even necessarily know that. So it was really interesting to see that there were these similarities. And the advice that he gave is something that, while it may sound very basic or um, very contemporary, is something that is shared throughout many cultures yet again and many different time periods that if you want to invite positivity into your life, something good, and deflect any sort of evil, there are a handful of things that somebody could or should do that can make them less likely to um, encounter those evil things. And again, that might be a little dangerous. Uh, that idea could be dangerous to put out because it's, it almost borders on that idea of the secret or, you know, the, what the law of attraction or all of these sort of uh, new age ideas, which can be dangerous because it also has a foot in the idea of uh, victim blaming, where you can have so much hubris that you think that you alone can deflect the evil or attract the positive. And so when things don't go that way, then it's easy to, you know, point the finger of blame. So it's not something, you know, I'm trying to do, but it's something that I thought it needed to be said so that people could at least have a hopeful view on what things they may be able to do to protect themselves, especially if they already felt that they had been in having an encounter with a demon.
because I had gotten a lot of emails from people who you know, wanted to discuss this with me. And I, I've been on shows where people have called in and, and discussed that they are being tormented actively by demons. And so I thought that, you know, there are actually people out there that may benefit from some of the advice um, that is, again, not necessarily coming from me. I, I don't have the credentials to uh, tell people how to ward off evil spirits, but it's just basically right. a, um, you know, a, a, uh, an amalgamation of, of, of historical insights and the advice of other people, and then maybe a little common sense thrown into that. Um, so, you know, I, I do have a, a section in there on how to protect yourself and against demons. And one one thing that I, you know, found to be interesting is the is something as simple as cleaning your personal space and your living environment. Um, you know, things like that, putting putting things that you enjoy around you, things that are uplifting and spiritual. And, and it may sound wishy-washy and, again, a little new age or something, but um, I, I I just see that, to me, it just, it's, true because when you start when you look at maybe like some of my descriptions of the house and environment that the um the murderer from north carolina had he surrounded himself with occult symbols and uh you know pictures of demons and a horrifically filthy environment and at this point he was already in the throes of of whatever had him and so much so that he, you know, surrounded himself with the dead bodies of his own neighbors. So clearly we have this extreme example of, of the surroundings being a reflection of what was going on inside. And so, you know, it, with both uh, people who were religious in their thinking, spiritual, and even psychologists, or just uh, old-fashioned folk advice, and all the way up to what then I would consider to be self-evident or just maybe common sense, but the idea that if you maintain order around you, that you're, you know, building a spiritual protection and maybe not, if you're concerned about evil entities, maybe don't decorate your room with a bunch of, you know, pentagrams and demonic images and, you know, try to actively do what Bill Bean called uh, living in warrior mode. And I, and I thought that was a really good piece of advice. Yeah, it's it's a uh, really cool. It's it makes me think of uh, all the different like uh, there's window decals and t-shirts that say good vibes on them, and yeah, it's pretty much the same. In, in a way, it's the same thing. You know, have that positive outlook on life, uh, be thoughtful, uh, and just keep those good vibes around because negativity really yeah. does uh, bring on negative things, uh, whether that be uh, physical, emotional, spiritual. Uh, so we just got to be aware mm -hmm. of what we put around us, whether it be people or objects or anything, uh, and just take on life uh, head on and just be I agree. ready. Garbage uh, in, garbage out. Absolutely. <laughs> well, unfortunately, <laughs> this does bring us to the end of the show. So, Doctor, I would like to give you a moment here to kind of tell everybody uh, where they can find you, where they can pick up your book, and, of course, share any information you'd like to share. Well, you can find me on my website, which is drheatherlynn.com. That's drheatherlynn.com. And uh, my books are available at the all bookstores. They're on Amazon and they're on audiobook as well. And um, I have a new book out right now called The Anunnaki Connection. It's about human origins and um, the fate of, of humanity as well. So, uh, yes. Yeah. And if you, I'm also on social media, Facebook, those types of things. But just come to my website and you'll be able to learn more about me and my books. Awesome. 
All right, Dr. Heather Lynn, thank you so much for being on Paratruth Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a really, really great honor. I really love the show. Thank you. All right, folks, that was Heather Lynn, author of Evil Archaeology, Demons, Possessions, and Sinister Relics. Uh, she has a couple more works out um, or in, in the works to come out, so uh, definitely looking forward to that. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back with post-show right after this. Hey everyone, I'm Kat Ward, host of Paranormal Heart. Join me on the second and last Sunday of each month as I speak to people who share their paranormal experiences. We talk about ghosts, cryptids, aliens and UFOs, and so much more. You can follow me on Podbean, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and any place you find fine podcasts. Welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name is Eric. And I'm Justin. And we had just gotten off the line with Doc Demon's Possessions and Sinister Relics. If you have not read this book, I do recommend picking it up. It was a really interesting read. Uh, very fascinating. And I had a lot of fun with this, this interview here today. Uh, there's a lot of information in this book that I think we've talked a little bit about over the years but we got to dive into some really interesting stuff especially in how uh science and and religion or faith can very unite in the same topics you know in the same thing so mm -hmm. yeah so i after reading through it and, and talking to her i actually really loved uh the fact that she kind of has done what we've talked about for a long time, brought science and religion together to talk about these things. Uh, not once did she ever claim that she believed one way or the other into these different things, which I thought was a very academic way of, of looking at it. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, we've talked about it several times, how, science and religion have to have a coming back together because at one point they were together and then they split because of some rumors started by sad a... divorce man <laughs> broken so, families um, it's all that happens with divorce that's pretty much um <laughs> so what are what are some of the the things that you took from this or what are some of your final thoughts about the the interview in the book yeah, so I mean, there was there. There's I still had more questions that I would have been great to have asked her, but you know, unfortunately, we are on a time limit with this show, uh, so that's a little disappointing. But like I said, there's a lot of things that I really just found it interesting, and you know, we there's a we, we talked about it a little bit. She got into it, um, but there was a chapter titled "The Most Horrific Archaeological uh, Finds." Uh, and that was another fascinating chapter. And she really went into basically just different archaeological sites or archaeological finds uh, that were really just actually uh, about a Neolithic massacre uh, 
which was a huge, like massive bone pit that showed various bones of men and women, primarily women though, and young children, uh, which looked like ritualistic murders or ritualistic uh, uh, sacrifices. But what was really interesting that she found were that some of these bones had markings as if the flesh was cut from the bone itself. Now, I guess some of her colleagues believe that it was just part of the sacrifice. She had actually thought that there is much more to it. And at this particular site, uh, people would actually cannibalize the sacrifices uh, afterwards. Mm -hmm. Now, apparently, I think it... As far as I could tell, the, the area in which this happened only lasted, like the village, only lasted about 50 years, I think. Uh, nobody really knows if they picked up and moved on or if it just kind of crumbled. Uh, but it was one of those things that were just really creepy and interesting. A and another one that I actually kind of liked, because you know how I am with the idea of witchcraft. And it just it's something interesting to me about, about the history of witchcraft. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's this section called witch bottles and smoked cats uh don't know if you're not the most fun read uh in regards to the smoked cats but <laughs> there is these witch bottles that people were find that archaeologists were finding all over the world even here in america uh, especially in the new england uh, area in which there were these small bottles that contained things like urine and pins or needles uh nail clippings hair clippings all you know various different things and it was believed that if you had one of these bottles and put it into a wall or buried it underground it would protect you from any type of bewitchment or curses placed on you by witches uh, and of course the urine it was believed that by putting it down in the ground or wherever you would cause the said witch uh to have extreme pain when urinating going to that level <laughs> you know i don't know uh, why oh well let's make her hurt when she urines or but you know i thought that was really interesting and these can still be found today especially in new england but even throughout the country uh so it, i think there's this kind of horrible thought that somebody living in new england maybe living in a home that has one of these witch bottles embedded in their walls and they don't even know about it soaked cat thing where again, people were finding dead cats that almost looked burnt or smoked to kind of mummify them. And these cats were placed also into the walls or underground and very often were found with rodents, either in their mouth or they would be uh, kind of placed in a way where it's cat chase mouse type of ordeal. And it was believed or is believed that this type of... of uh, protection spell or talisman or a warding whatever you want to call it way of protecting a person's home or property from rodents so again another one of those really interesting things that that sad thing especially for you know i've got six cats in the house so to think of one of them being smoked and put into walls just a little it's a little little sketch. Uh, yeah what about you um, I think the biggest thing that I liked about it was the fact that not only did she, and I had mentioned this during the interview, not only did she do these different um, evil uh, things throughout the book, archaeology, uh, she talked about stuff that we talked about last episode, which was talismans, charms, those sort of things, but she also brought up 
the fact that uh, there's protection as well. And the you know the I thought it was actually really interesting when she brought up the fact that there are some psychiatrists right now using an exorcism, quote unquote exorcism, to treat patients that are believing that they're possessed. You know, they're they're using that belief and using this uh method to cure them in a sense or at least treat them. So yeah. I thought that was like fascinating. I I've never heard that before. So uh I definitely recommend the book because it is very packed full of knowledge and just the fact that she like I said is bringing together science and religion in a book that uh is about something that is still taboo to this day even. So um I thought it was mm-hmm. a great a great book and a great interview. So um before we wrap up uh just my usual spiel uh you know if you're looking to start a podcast uh reach out to us here at New Lantern Media. We want to get some new podcasts out there to our listeners. And on top of that, uh, shows that don't necessarily involve me and Eric. You know, we're family. We love each other. But at some point, I don't think we like to listen to ourselves that much anymore. <laughs> so, See, we, uh, well, we definitely need some help getting away. Yeah, for sure. So... All right, um, that's about it, folks. So until next time, where you'll find us, same time, same channel. My name is Justin. And I'm Eric. Peace. This is This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.